John 1, starting at verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally, they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him, except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would give us attentive hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, peace on a Sunday afternoon is a bit of a rare thing. And the other Sunday afternoon, the first Sunday after term had finished, uh, I'm a college chaplain, in case you didn't know, um, there was a bang on the front door, and I went to see who was there, and it was somebody from a political party. I have to say, I wasn't best pleased to see them. And their opening pitch was, what issues do you have? And I found it a little strange. First of all, because the answer that first came to my mind, well, at present, the issue I've got is with somebody like you banging on my door, but I thought, that's far too rude, so I can't possibly say that, because my husband would have told me off. And then I thought, well, 
there's the puddles up Banbury Road when I cycle. And then I thought, well, that sounds very trite. But when I thought about it, having shut the door and concluded things politely, I thought, well, actually, the issues that do concern me are the obvious ones, aren't they? The global inequalities, the plight of the refugees. On one level, they're the obvious issues that I'm sure that everybody here is profoundly concerned about. And then there is another issue that's very much on my mind, which is how we relate the Christian gospel and what we hear in church and what we read in God's word to the vast majority we mix with, people who are secular or non-religious. Because it's very easy when we come to church to hear sermons preached in terms of biblical and Christian assumptions. But actually, the question about, well, how does this text relate to somebody who doesn't share those assumptions at present, somebody who is secular, the person I meet next door, or who is in the class with me, or the person in the workplace, or the person who is agnostic about faith, And in the context of a college chapel where I work, most of the people who come to the services would not describe themselves as Christians. So that's why I've been giving it so much thought. So in this sermon today, one of my aims really is to say, okay, well, how does this passage, what does it say to the person who is shaped by secular ideology? And I want to say I think that a lot of what we're going to look at, well, we're only looking at two main points, really, shows that how we as human beings experience the world really accords with what is going on in this passage and the needs as presented by uh, John. You see, I think John presents a worldview that very much accords with how we as human beings feel our needs to be. So I think that there are limitations to secular worldviews. And we need, I think, when we are um, constantly bombarded with secular ideology, to be aware of those. And I think this passage does this quite well. So we pick up the story in John 1 verse 19, where we have John the Baptist in the desert, baptizing people. And Mark's gospel tells us he wore camel hair and locusts. I did ask my husband to dress up tonight to illustrate this. He was reluctant to do so. But to all intents and purposes, this character is eccentric, isn't he? He's eating locusts, which I take it's not the normal diet. And he's out in the desert, crying in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. And he's quoting Isaiah 40, an ancient biblical prophecy dating from around the 7th century BC. Now, this is meant to be the launch event, if you like, for Jesus' ministry. So what would you have done? Is that the way you'd have launched Jesus' ministry? With a man like John the Baptist in the desert? I doubt it. What would you have done? I would almost certainly have planned a series of lectures in the Jerusalem temple with the authorized people looking, studying intellectually through the Old Testament to show how the coming Christ fulfills those prophecies. But that's not what happens here. This is a dramatic and it's an apocalyptic scene. It's one where heaven is opened, if you like, and we have this glimpse 
of who uh, Jesus is and what his ministry is going to be about. And all of this focuses on this eccentric, unauthorized prophet crying out in a bit of old desert scrubland. Now, I think it's very important to understand how the, what would have been understood by this drama. Here is John the Baptist. But the people who heard him probably realized he was quoting words written to the exiles, well, written to people who would be coming back as exiles. It was all rather complicated. He's prophesying both the exile and the return of the exiles, which took place in 586 um, before Christ. So they would have heard and known that John the Baptist was saying, come back. God is saying to the people who've been alienated, been alienated in Babylon, come back. God is calling you home. God's judgment time is coming to the end. God has not forgotten you. He's calling you back. And this way back to God, obviously John is saying this is coming through Jesus Christ, definitive return. And he's trying to say that God who has acted faithfully to his people in bringing them back from exile in 5th century, 6th century BC, will bring back those who are alienated. And this promise of comfort is not only subjective, it's not only a feeling in the heart, but it has the objective dimension too, that God has physically provided a way back for the exiles in the past, will come in the person of Jesus, as, as his word says, and rescue them from their sin and alienation and bring them to this new order. So there's an echo of God's faithfulness that would have been understood and implicit. And I think this business of the drama and the call back from exile and from the place of alienation speaks very clearly to us today. Pretty well every week, even on the news this week, I wrote this some weeks earlier, some situation, somebody was described as being alienated. Somebody had done something terrible. They're alienated from society. And even those of us who don't feel alienated from society and would generally consider ourselves to be part of mainstream society, we know what it is to feel alienated. I guess that most of us at some point over Christmas were in some social group where we felt alienated. Or if you're, yeah, if you're an introvert in a social group, I guess you're an extrovert, you don't feel alienated. But anyway, I don't know. <coughs> um, there is this feeling that we have, that we are sometimes observers and outside the events of life. And it can be very difficult to sense, see God's presence with us. I don't like the song, the lines in the song, in the presence of God, all our fears are, are washed away. And I'm thinking, is, there is a sense in which it's true, but there's a sense in which that's not necessarily true, although I might get lynched for some people afterwards for saying so. I think it's debatable. It's not, it should not be taken that if we're Christians, we don't have fear. I don't think that's what the song's saying, but I think we need to be clear that we can have difficulties and there can be things very hard to understand when we're Christian. So I think when we reflect on John the Baptist's cry in the wilderness, the Lord is coming, 
and God calls those who are away to return to himself, he's calling us home. And actually is saying that there's only one place where we're going to feel that sense of peace and rest, and that is at home. The prodigal son, the story in Luke's gospel, he comes home. He's done bad things. He's been immensely disrespectful to his father, but he's welcomed home. Augustine, the first missionary to England in the 4th century, our souls are restless until they find their rest in God or at home. The second thing is that uh, John presents Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29, if you look at it, it says that, and then that phrase is reiterated again in phrase uh, in verse 35, well, in part anyway. So why does John make such a big thing in the desert about Jesus taking away the sins of the world? Were the people there particularly sinful in the desert? Do people think that that's their main need? I doubt it. But we need to see this in the sense of John enacting a drama. It's an apocalyptic event. Heaven is opened. And the meaning of the Greek in, in um, John 1.18 is that God has sent down to interpret or exegete his son to explain Jesus. So John is revealing Jesus as the one, the Lamb of God who takes away. He's the saviour. And by using the word lamb, he's also the sacrifice. And he draws attention to the chief problem of humankind or to the world, which is sin. And if you ask people what's wrong with the world, they will give you examples of sin, won't they? They'll say greed, inequality, selfishness, you name it, you know the list. But as Christians, we say the fundamental problem is sin. And I think we're right just because solutions to the other problems manifestly don't work. So we often hear what we need to do is to educate people. If they are educated, then they will not get involved in uh, so many bad things. To some extent, that's true. But actually, I think we just produce more educated criminals, don't we? The fundamental problem, the Bible claims, is sin. It claims that there is a dark side to human nature. That seems to me patently obvious in the world as we experience it. It's patently obvious as I observe my own heart that actually there's a bias in there at times that really pulls in a direction that it should not go. So in his ministry... Both John and later Jesus was clear that the problem of the world is sin. And that's why, that's what John the Baptist makes as his main mission statement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Taking away stuff, as you probably know, those of you who know, Robert and myself, is uh, something that we do quite a lot of. Uh, we, have, we married relatively late in life, so we have a lot of junk a lot of possessions, and we're constantly taking them away. And when we take car loads of stuff to a mayor sort of the tip, I feel a great sense of achievement and peace 
when we have less clutter in the house. It is very, very freeing. And for Christmas, I was given a lovely dustbin, a new dustbin. Well, it's rented dustbin. It's a, uh, it's a garden waste dustbin. I can't remember which color it is. It's the wrong color. It's brown, and you'd think it'd be green, but it's brown, isn't it? The rented dustbin to take away my garbage from the garden. Think how much more liberating it is for all that feels to be against us, the sin, the shortcomings, the failure, if that is taken away. Sometimes we think of sin as a very narrow category, but if we think of it in its true breadth, all that is against us, as Colossians says, are sins, the things we've done wrong, the things we've failed, If that is taken away completely by Christ, just think of how that really feels. And I think we often need to claim that in quite a deep way rather than just the superficial things that we think of. So Jesus, uh, John announces this in this taking away of sin in the context of baptism, the purification rite Not only is the junk removed, but we are washed clean. I love the Coen Brothers film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You might know the film. If you don't, you should definitely get it out on a DVD. Escape convicts who've held up the Piggly Wiggly. Do you folk from the States know the Piggly Wiggly? It was a big supermarket. Certainly in South Carolina, you probably don't have it. Anyway, you must visit the Piggly Wiggly in the Southern American States. It's an education. Anyway, they've held up the Piggly Wiggly, and they're on the run from the state of Mississippi. They see the baptism service, and they leap in. Well, some of them leap in to have their sins washed away. And there's a wonderful line with one of the convicts says to somebody who's just been baptized, your sins may have been washed away, but the state of Mississippi is another thing. But the important thing is the negative, the removal of the sin, is replaced by this positive, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, symbolized in water baptism. And it's that Holy Spirit dwelling within us that animates and brings a fresh light, life and comfort. So for the secular mind, all of this raises quite a lot of questions. If there is no God, then you cannot have sin as the world's fundamental problem. So what would you say the problem was? And why do solutions not seem to work? And why do we seem to be getting into deeper and deeper mess? You see, I think that the Christian teaching that the problem of the, of the world lies with the human heart is actually borne out pretty clearly inexperience. G.K. Chesterton famously responded to the question in the Times, what's wrong with the world, with the answer, dear sir, I am. I put it to you, this Christian view, that we need to return to God to have our shortcomings, our mistakes, everything against us forgiven, washed away. That accords with our psychological need as a human being and with the reality of what it is to be human. And then we can begin to address some of those global problems. And God calls us home. Christ meets us in our state of alienation. However that affects us and whatever point, at some point, I I think most of us feel alienated. Christ comes and will 
fill us with his spirit in that place. We are accepted. We know that comfort and direction. In this world, many people feel short of comfort. There are not, in my understanding, too many very happy secular philosophers. A lot of them seem profoundly depressed and quite lacking in hope. We can distract ourselves with many enjoyable pursuits in life. But if we want inner peace, I suggest we need to turn to God for his cleansing and for his spirit. These desires that we have to be loved, to be secure, can be fulfilled when we return to God from this place of alienation. So I suggest to you that God didn't provide a lecture series, but an eccentric prophet crying in the wilderness as a drama to remind us that God comes to bring us back, to take away our sins, and to infill us by his Holy Spirit. And, as the verse says later in John, to give us life to the full. May God so help us this year. Amen.